You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast, where you can get in-depth political analysis from a biblical worldview. We're not trying to be progressive or conservative. We're trying to be faithful Christians in the public square. This is the kingdom. The kingdom. Yes, it is. Gotta spread the word. Which is no good, Ann Camp. You're listening to the Ann Campaign's Church Politics Podcast with Justin Gibney. That's me and the Windy City, City representative, the baddest brother above the Mason-Dixon line, the right reverend, Christopher Butler. Chris, now from what I understand, and I want to be very um, compassionate towards you on this, I understand that you're really broken up about this Oprah interview about the royal family. Is it true that you haven't been able to sleep since that interview? Well, you know, it actually is true that I haven't been able to sleep uh, since that interview, but it, it has nothing to do with that interview. I didn't watch it. <laughs> <laughs> it has nothing to do with the interview. So I, so I got some bad information then. Man, I did not even watch that. I did not have the time. Truth be told, brother, I, I didn't watch it either. Um, from what I hear, it did sadly have say, you know, did I guess show that there was some racism and missed. But I couldn't quite figure out from what I'm hearing. I, I can't quite figure out whether they want people in their business or they don't want people in their business. I don't know, brother. It, it's hard for me to to get myself to care about that. Maybe I'll have to ask my, my wife or some other folks who are paying uh, more attention. But anyway, we're about to get into it. So as usual, grab your Bible, get your mind right and prepare to think not like a Republican, not like a Democrat, but like a Christian. Now, last Saturday afternoon, the U.S. Senate passed the American Rescue Act. And, you know, that's the act dealing with COVID. Uh, you'll recall that the, act, the House of Representatives uh, passed a version of the bill last week. Now, the Washington Post is saying that this is one of the most generous expansions of aid to poor people in the history of uh, our country. Now, we've already talked a little bit about the bill um, when it was first uh, presented. So what I want to try to do today mostly is focuses on, focus on the differences between the House bill and the Senate bill that was just passed on Saturday. Uh, first, and, and to, the, to the dismay of many progressives and perhaps to, to my co-host as well, uh, the Senate dropped the minimum wage provision. Now, this all started because the parliamentarian ruled that minimum wage shouldn't be increased through the reconciliation process. That was an objection that they made. Um, and Vice President uh, Kamala Harris decided not to overrule that decision. So the par parliamentarian spoke, made the objection. It could have been overruled. They chose not to overrule it. Subsequently, uh, Bernie Sanders decided to call a vote to waive the parliamentarian's objection. Uh, but the vote but it was actually voted down. And, and, and Bernie Sanders doing that served another purpose, too, which is kind of to expose the people who were against uh, the $15 increase in the minimum wage. That was not only Republicans, but also eight uh, Democrat senators or at least eight senators that are in the Democrat caucus. So you had Manchin, Sinema, Shaheen, Hassan, Tester, Carper, Coons and King, who is like Bernie, a, a independent, but he's in the Democratic caucus. Now, a senator, uh, Kirsten Cinema, was blasted for the cute way she gave the measure a thumbs down. 
uh, when she casted her vote. Some people thought she was just doing too much and showed a callousness towards the issue. It's like, dude, this is a very serious issue. Why you have to pull the kind of uh, uh, McCain-esque thumbs down? People were a little bit upset with that. Now, something else that happened, Chris, was the Senate bill also limited the number of Americans who qualify for the $1,400 direct payment. Uh, So now no individual with an adjusted gross income over $80,000 or couples over $160,000 will receive the check. Now in the House, it was actually phased out at a a higher rate. So it was for nobody making money over $100,000 as an individual and no couples making over $200,000. As a result of this change, uh, 12 million fewer adults will qualify for the direct payment. Uh, now, it's important to understand that these payments are based on 2019 and 2020 income. Something else that's different between the House bill and the Senate bill is that the Senate bill does not include student debt forgiveness, uh, but it, it it would make uh, that measure tax free if it's passed in the future. So it's not passed this time, but let's say that they pass something like this in September that would be a tax-free measure. And so that is actually in the Senate bill, but it's not in the House bill. Um, Next, we have unemployment insurance or or jobless benefits. Uh, That was extended in the Senate bill uh, at $300 a week until September 6th. Now, in the House bill, uh, it was extended uh, at $400 until August 29th. So we see some differences in time and amount uh, there. Uh, Another really big one is the child tax credit. Uh, It will be at $3,600 per child that's under six and $3,000 for every child that's over six. Uh, Here's another big thing. And and one of the reasons that we're saying that it it kind of is helping a lot of uh, poor families who may not have been helped in the same way before is that families with no income will receive the full benefit. Right. So this is a tax credit. They might not have benefited before because they're not you know, paying taxes, but they'll receive the full benefit this time. Uh, and so that's a good thing. Now, Biden's measure or the measure that's going through that just went through the Senate is expected to be approved in the House. So this is expected to move forward. And so when we make these comparisons, it started in the House. The Senate made some changes. It's going back to the House and the House is, is, expo- is, is expected to accept it without any additional changes. Um, now something we need to talk about and and how they've been promoting this and we've seen in the media is that it is supposed to move 10 million kids above the poverty line. We talked about child, child poverty on this show a a few times before, but that's a significant number. 10 million kids above the poverty line, $880 million in that bill, uh, is there to expand the supplemental nutrition assistance program. That's SNAP. We want these kids to eat. And and so they're putting more money into that particular program. Uh, But I think it's also important to note because, you know, we give we give both sides of the conversation here. It's also important to note that all of this is temporary. Right. That the provisions here don't last longer than a year. So we would be wrong if we were trying to indicate that this somehow solved poverty. Right. After that year is up, many of those kids may go back below the poverty line. So I do want to be clear about that. Now, one of the main ways that the bill differs from the Trump era COVID bills is that the money goes straight to families. Uh, It goes straight to families, whereas when we see the Trump bills, 
that money was going more so to businesses to keep people employed. So a lot of money was going to the business, then to the people. This is going straight to families. Um, and we've talked about this both before. You know that I, me and Chris generally think that this is a good thing. Um, but I think we do have to realize if we're going to tell both sides of the story, we do have to realize that injecting so much money into the economy will likely cause inflation. Uh, and inflation hurts poor people and middle class people, too. Right. Um, especially when everything inflates except their paychecks. OK, so we want to be clear about it. I think this is a good thing, but we need to be keeping our eyes out because it may cause inflation that could bring about trouble later on. So there are you know, when you put this much money into uh, the economy, there are consequences to that. Now, this is kind of an emergency situation. I think it's it's necessary. Some may disagree, but it's not without consequence. Now, some Republicans have also pointed out that the act that the act includes money for a bridge between New York and Ontario and a San Francisco Bay Area transit extension. Those aren't exactly matters directly related to the emergency and probably should have been left out the bill. Uh, but what's your general thoughts, Chris, on this uh, American Rescue Act? Yeah, I mean, I, I love and appreciate, first off, Justin, just how you uh, laid these things out. Um, and I, I think that this is a solid package. Um, it does provide uh, immediate um, relief. Um, it, it does take child tax credit, uh, makes it basically fully refundable, um, turns half of it into direct payments. Um, so th those child tax credits uh, will go 50% of it from July to December will go out as a, uh, as a direct payment to families. Uh, and then the rest of it will be a tax credit at the end of the year, but fully uh, refundable. Um, there's help uh, here for schools uh, to reopen. So this to me is a, is a really solid, solid package. That said, there is a lot left on the table. Um, as you talked about, um, this minimum wage hike would have been one of the ways to really respond uh, to the, uh, the inflation that will almost certainly come uh, with the injection of this much money. Also, as vaccination is taking hold um, at the same time, you're probably going to see uh, a lot of uh, spending, uh, you know, just happening. Uh, and, and that's, that's going to happen. And so uh, giving folks a, a minimum wage increase would have been a way to respond to that. As you highlighted, uh, the CTC uh, is for this year. So we left 10 million children out of poverty this year. Uh, if we don't do something else, uh, then we lower them back into poverty next year. Um, and so, you know, there probably could have been a more thoughtful approach uh, to local aid, um, you know, something to kind of make sure that it's not just building bridges, uh, you know, in uh, areas that are controlled by uh, party leadership. Um, so the, the, the big question for me is what's next? Um, you know, probably the, the biggest uh, issue that I've had with some of the discourses, this is making its way through the Congress, is that, uh, you know, folks on either side of the conversation are sort of falling into that thing that we do in politics where, uh, where we try to make it, you have to either be 100% complimentary and supportive or 100% uh, 
you know, against uh, the package. I think the next question, the question is what is next? Um, you know, it is possible to be extremely complimentary. I am complimentary, supportive of what is done, uh, but there is a long way to go. Um, you know, Justin, uh, you're a football player. Uh, and so this, this to me is like a team that came out and played a really solid first quarter. Um, you know, you, you have to appreciate that. That is a good thing. But we have not won the game. Uh, and so it would be a huge mistake uh, for folks to, to, to be overly jubilant um, and kind of rest on this because uh, there's a long, long way to go to kind of uh, fix things structurally in, in our country um, that really were broken before COVID. Uh, that's, that's the thing that, that I think we have to keep in mind when we talk about COVID relief and COVID rescue is that we were in a very bad way pre-COVID. Um, and so uh, there's a lot to do. This is, this is a great start. I mean, we've learned some things through this process. Uh, I don't know, without COVID, do we see uh, actually taking child tax credit and making it direct payments, which is something that I've thought uh, we should do uh, for, for a long period of time. Uh, so, so, we have some great tools. This is a very solid uh, package, but, you know, take a victory lap. I'm sure, uh, especially Democrats want to take a victory lap. And, you know, you uh, you get to do that uh, at this moment. But then it's, it's got to be about what's next. Yeah. And, and I would and I would say again that this bill got no votes from Republicans. Um, so it'll be interesting to see what the Republican Party is going to present to deal with some of the problems that, as you mentioned, may just be temporarily dealt with in this uh, piece of legislation. Uh, what kind of things, you know, are is there going to be an infrastructure bill? Uh, will there be an, will there be another bill just focused on poverty, but focused on po- poverty for the long term? And I think we all know we need that, but we have to consider how much money we spent here. So I just want people, you know, it's very easy to say this good, that bad. And not understand that policies have unintended consequences. They have all, you know, there's a there's a play between the, the greater good and, and and things of that nature. It's not just all good things that come with something. It, it may be good for the moment. Again, we think that this is generally good, but it comes with a lot of other questions. Policy making is very tough, especially when it comes to something that's this big. I do wish, you know. Sometimes you have pork. So what they call pork spending is you have a big bill and you throw smaller things into it to get people to vote for that. I don't think that was necessary here. You know, whoever the San Francisco uh, representative is that got the money for their little extension was going to vote for it anyway. So my question is, why put something like that in there unless you have to, especially when it's an emergency package? And we have to be very cautious with what we throw into uh, things and the agendas that we bring into play when we're talking about emergencies. Any anything else on that, uh, Chris? Yeah, I mean, just just on that point, I think that the big problem with that kind of uh, pork spending and, and other aspects that we did see through this process uh, is that you you got no Republican votes, and and the Republicans have to carry a lot of the water for that. Um, but we do have to figure out how to come together more than we have, because there are things that we got to do for the United States that we can't wait for one ideological tribe to vanquish the other uh, before we get it done. Um, And so I'm, I don't know, I'm I'm spending a lot of time praying, uh, Justin, that we can see that happen. 
Yeah. And the other stuff's not going to be able to go through reconciliation. Right. It's going to have to really go through the sin in, in a real way. And unless they get rid of the filibuster, there's going to have to be some conversations. But I do appreciate that folks like uh, Romney have shown a willingness to come up with their own ideas and they're not going with just the, the just say no caucus. So we will keep our our, 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 our eyes peeled and keep you off. Uh, keep y'all paying attention and keep y'all up to date on what's going on. We're going to take a quick break and we will be right back with the church politics podcast. We are back on the church politics podcast. We were just talking about the uh, American rescue act. And there was something very important missing from that act. Something that President Biden once vehemently supported, but no, but apparently supports no longer. Now, ch- times change, but truth doesn't change. Democrats left the Hyde Amendment out of the American Rescue Act. The Hyde Amendment makes sure that no federal funds are used for elected, elective, excuse me, abortions. It ensures that people who disagree with abortion don't have to pay for abortions. And this was an amendment for years and years that was bipartisan. You had people on both sides say, you know, one side may agree uh, that uh, somebody should be able to get an abortion. But both sides agree that folks who don't believe in it or believe it's murder or believe that it shouldn't happen shouldn't have to pay for it. And that consensus no longer stands, even though we have a president who at one time supported that, not that long ago, supported it. Uh, We haven't heard a lot of commentary on it. It just kind of disappeared. The media hasn't called it out so much, but it is not there. Now, Republican Senator um, uh, James Lankford, who many of you may know was on, has been on the show before, tried to insert the Hyde, uh, the Hyde provision into the legislation. Um, All the Democrats voted against it, except for three Democrats, Uh, There were three that supported the move. That was Bob Casey from Pennsylvania, Joe Manchin from West Virginia and Tim Kaine from Virginia. Now, as you may recall, uh, Tim Kaine was uh, Hillary uh, Clinton's vice president uh, selection uh, in 2016. And during that time, if you think back, he kind of waffled on the, the Hyde Amendment. Um, there were, he made some pretty ambiguous statements, but there was a lot of pressure on him from the left when he was announced as the VP to flip flop on his Hyde Amendment position. So initially his Hyde Amendment position was that, you know, he supported the Hyde Amendment. He made some ambiguous, vague statements about you know, his support for it. And then he would later come on, as he did uh, earlier, to go against it. Uh, So now I think he's clearly in the space where he's against it. I was actually just talking to a young person who was pointing out that uh, that he you know, he has stood up. And I have to give him credit because he did stand up here against against his party. And we just need to see more of that. But again, Chris, here's my problem. Why is this emergency legislation being used for that purpose? Why not put the Hyde Amendment into this? And when we're talking about hurting Americans, When we're talking about child poverty, when we're talking about getting food and jobs back for Americans and making sure that families thrive. Why do we toss something like that in there? Now, I could be wrong. You may disagree. But to me, that's just a bad faith move. And when you have a political system and when you have institutions that are just lacking trust, Americans just don't trust their institutions. Throwing something like that in there and not really having a large conversation. I mean, people talked about 
you know, getting rid of the Hyde Amendment and all that. But it wasn't a real large conversation uh, around this uh, legislation because the legislation wasn't about that. And yet we throw that in there. So I want to give a shout out to uh, Bob Casey, Joe Manchin, Tim Kaine and the Republicans who who who, who uh, tried to get that uh, that amendment or that provision put into the legislation. Uh, I'll even give Tim Kaine a, a church, uh, a church folk champ. I haven't given out the church folk champ in a while. So I'll give Senator Tim Kaine the church folk champ. I had just uh, showed doubt. I had just kind of expressed my doubt that he was going to stand up for for that stuff. And he did. So I stand corrected. But I want to question the administration and the folks who are behind this. Why why we would we would choose this bill and choose this issue to, to, to make sure that we, we push through an agenda that had nothing to do uh, with the issues, with the covid crisis and the issues that we're facing. Chris, I'm going to go ahead and throw it over to you. I'm a little bit frustrated about that. Yeah. So I, I think I'm scoring this a little bit uh, differently uh, on both sides. Right. For me, this is not so much about how folks um, vote on these measures, but how we actually are dealing with the narrative around abortion. Because I think if we don't deal with the narrative, then the the policy is on a track that is going to be very difficult to turn it around. Um, and because I don't think that we depend on elected officials to to change the narrative, like even even you know Tim Kaine and the other Democrats who. Uh, who supported the, the voted for the high uh, amendment to, to be a part of this legislation. Um, you know, praise God for that. But I, I don't find a whole lot of value, I will say, in straight symbolic votes. Right. Um, and as, as if we don't change this narrative, then we can't change the, the policy direction. Uh, and so while I can, you know, understand frustration with Democrats who didn't support this um, and, uh, you know, thumbs up to, to Democrats and Republicans who did actually want to bring this, uh, Justin, and lay this at our doorstep, right? Like the church, especially uh, the black church. I want to challenge us. I want to lay this at our doorstep. Because if the narrative around Hyde Amendment is that Hyde Amendment keeps poor people from getting abortions uh, and allows uh, rich folks to get abortions uh, at will, um, then that means that folks are not really understanding the narrative. Um, I I was doing some reading around this and I I saw this quote that uh, a guy from the uh, National Right to Life Committee uh, Douglas Johnson, he was quoting some of his testimony. He says, we believe that the Hyde Amendment has proven itself to be the greatest domestic abortion reduction law ever enacted by Congress. It means that, and he's quoted some data, and then he says, it means that well over 1 million Americans are walking around alive today because of the Hyde Amendment. And to me, that is a demonstration of why we have to take control of this narrative because walking around alive uh, is not the standard. I'm sorry for me. Um, As somebody who grew up in real poverty, uh, has experienced homelessness, uh, you know, had a parent who was drug addicted, 
uh, and and really actually knows what it's like uh, as a child and a teenager to have to consider if actually being alive is a good thing. Standing up and saying that you got people walking around alive um, is, is not the standard because if they're walking around in poverty and walking around in, in, in gang infested neighborhoods, like we have to have this whole life conversation uh, when it comes to what we're doing on abortion policy. And I don't think we can look to elected officials um, to to really lead the way in changing that narrative. No Democrat voted. Well, we can't say none because some did. But you didn't see Democrats introducing um you know, the Hyde Amendment uh, into this legislation. And I think when you look at us, like we, you would want to see representatives and senators who represent places that black church folks represent large portions of the voting population. Our representatives should have been introducing this, not even a Republican, because these are issues that are important to us. And we see both sides of this and understand that it, that it can't just be about walking around alive. Uh, it's got to be about walking around alive and not in poverty uh, and upwardly mobile and uh, able to get a job. Uh, and all those things are part of the conversation. Right. So um, I, I, I feel the frustration. But I think I'm going to bring my frustration, unfortunately, and lay the, the lion's share of it you know, at my own doorstep and at our doorstep uh, as the church, because we have to. Uh, make our representatives know that it is not okay to just be, you know, abortion on demand. That's not okay. Cause it's not okay in our communities. It shouldn't be okay with our elected officials. Yeah. I, I agree with you for the most part. I mean, that, that is certainly not the whole ball game, right? Uh, that, that vote by Tim Kaine isn't everything. It, it's not enough. Um, but I think it is something, I think we can do the big things and we can change the narrative and be focused on change the narrative. And we can observe the small things, because I think one thing about a vote is that Planned Parenthood sees that vote. NARAL sees that vote. And so you don't have to make that vote because it is going to hurt your 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 scorecard when it comes to some of those folks. So I think it does have impact. I would like people to do the big things to change the culture. I think that is more in our hands than it is in politicians hands. But any time you get to stand up. I think it's important that you stand up to say what is right or wrong, even if it doesn't seem big, even if it seems somewhat symbolic, uh, especially, though, when it has can have an impact on you and kind of conflicts with some of your career goals. You got to stand up. And I think that type of courage is just part of the Christian life. And so I want to when somebody takes that stand, I want to I want to shout them out, even if it isn't. Uh, the, the the final stand or, and, and even if we hope they can do more. So uh, point taken. Uh, any any other thoughts on that? Yeah, I mean, I, I definitely uh, I agree that we should shout out folks who stand up uh, on this and, and and applaud those efforts. Um, and it, I think it just it it, it reemphasizes the point um, that we ought not let folks stand alone. Uh, we have a, a role to play uh, in the in the day to day how we're interacting with our elected officials uh, in our community because I, you know, I, I appreciate the stand. Um, I, I think I'm 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 saying that my greater frustration is that the the stand was basically a standalone, and it was a a stand not from somebody who represents 
you know, a vast majority of the folks who I talk to every day, who we talk to through this podcast, like they should know uh, from us that this is important. Uh, and and when you see, a lot of times when you see your elected officials doing stuff or not doing stuff, uh, it is a reflection of how important they think it is to you. Now, sometimes it is this kind of principled stance. I believe is right. I'm going to do what I think is right. Uh, but if folks are not feeling pressure, um, it's, it's much easier to do the easy thing. I share your frustration, brother. Let's 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 up the pressure. We will be right back. Give us a second. Are you too progressive for conservatives and too conservative for progressives? As a Christian, do you find yourself feeling politically homeless? If so, then you're not alone. Listen, this is Justin Gibney, president of the And Campaign. And if you're a Christian who doesn't know a whole lot about politics or someone who knows a good deal about politics but wants to be more faithful in the public square, then you have to read the And Campaign's book, Compassion and Conviction. The And Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement that we publish with InterVarsity Press. Whether you just want to understand the relationship between church and state, why Christians should engage politics at all, how Christians should engage partisanship, politics and race, advocacy and protest, or even civility, this is the book for you. It's very much Bible-centered. It's Bible study and small group friendly. There are questions and exercises after every chapter that give you a framework for engaging politics in a biblical way. So if you want to do it in a better way, get our book, Compassion and Conviction, The End Campaign's Guide to Faithful Civic Engagement. And we are back on the Church Politics Podcast. An interesting thing happened last week. An author we all grew up reading was canceled. Well, sort of canceled, not really canceled. I don't know. You be the judge. That's right. Dr. Seuss, the man behind the cat in the hat and green eggs and ham, will no longer have some of his books in circulation for sale. Dr. Seuss Enterprises, which controls the author's books and characters, announced it will no longer publish six of his books because of the hurtful and wrong way they portray people of color. I want to be very clear. I think they were completely within their rights to do this. Uh, If they think that it represents the organization wrong and they want to make a statement about that and they think it's hurting people, so be it. Uh, I would also point out that all those books quickly sold out. Now, again, I don't bring this up to get into the culture war back and forth that I'm sure we all have been seeing on social media. That's that's not really what I'm talking about. We've already talked about the fact that I'm generally not a fan of canceling books. Um, We spoke about that a few weeks ago. Um, But I think there is, Chris. Another very important dynamic at play here that we really need to discuss uh, and that I think gets ignored uh, too often. Now, let me preface it by saying this. I I think that it's good that our society is more sensitive towards cultural triggers and things that cause our neighbors trauma. Uh, I am glad that the church is focusing more on trauma and even some folks in the and campaign uh, are focusing more on trauma and the church could probably even do more in that area. That's a good thing. I'm glad people are more open and feel more free to talk about their trauma and talk about, you know, the things that trigger them or make them feel a certain way. 
Uh, and so what I'm about to say isn't to discourage people from expressing that. Please express that. If you need help, please get help. Right. Um, we also need to be very careful and, and teach those around us to be careful about our words and how we address people and describe them generally. Uh, that's real to me. And you're not going to get any arguments from me on that. But Chris, in the same breath, I think there is a reason for caution in this conversation, though. I think there's always a risk of seeing an error, seeing something that's wrong and overcorrecting and overreacting. Now, it's wrong not to react. It's, it's wrong not to, cor to correct. But in our broken brokenness, humans can often overcorrect or overreact. And we have to realize that being too sensitive or being too easily triggered has some very serious consequences itself. I mean, you hear this stuff about banning all books with the N-word in them, including classics like Huckleberry Finn. I think there were some New Jersey lawmakers that tried to ban that book from New Jersey curriculum altogether. Um, and I just don't think, Chris, that that accomplishes what they think it accomplishes. Now, I'm not here and I'm not going with the I'm not with the whole conservative narrative of calling people snowflakes and trying to gaslight anybody. That's not the point of what I'm trying to say. But we can't forget that there's a value in resiliency. If we're always highlighting triggers and trauma, then we're not encouraging fortitude. We don't have to be promoting toxic ma masculinity to say that there's a value in toughness and having thick skin. We can make this country more just, but that's very different than eliminating every microaggression. Now, we should condemn microaggressions. We should condemn those things. But can we do that without setting the expectation that you won't have to overcome them? And this just makes me think of, you know, history for black people. Right. Um, never would I justify any of the negative things that we're talking about. But we got to think about the fact that. The civil rights movement was about resiliency. It was about overcoming name calling, abuse, negativity, not overemphasizing it or harping on it. If they would have been triggered and tra traumatized by some of the stuff that we can't bear to be around, they would have been paralyzed and they would have gotten nothing done, Chris. So what I'm saying is be considerate. Call out insensitivity. But let's not get to the point where we, we seem to almost be glorifying hypersensitivity. I would say that everybody I would I would encourage you guys to read the book uh, called The Coddling of the American Mind by Jonathan Haidt, which using data shows uh, that when we remove when we try to remove all adversity and all harmful words from our environment, we never build the capacity to be resilient and tenacious. To have fortitude. We never build the calluses on our hands to actually do the work. Life isn't. And I, and I try to tell my friends with young kids this and I try to remember it for myself. Life isn't simply about avoiding harm and risk. Now, those things should be limited in some serious ways. But sometimes we have to endure to grow. 
Um, I'll end by saying this, at least, and I'll pass the mic, at least. People aren't always as sensitive as we make them out to be. Right. And we actually the book talks about this, but we actually make people more sensitive when the when we tell them they should be sensitive about certain things. I know you're familiar with this. Chris It's like my toddler. When he falls down, he looks at me to see my reaction. If I overreact to him, then he'll act like he's really hurt. And eventually he'll think he's hurt. But if I act like it's not that big of a deal. Then he just keeps it moving. So I think we understand the historically we're starting to understand the the flaw in underreacting and being callous. But we're not seeing the flaw in overreacting. And so I, I'm interested in your thoughts about this, though, Chris. Yeah, I mean, I, I uh, not getting into the like you said, the culture war stuff, right? Because the, the six books that went out of circulation, I never read any of them, uh, you know, but it it. um it makes me, if, if I can switch to a little bit more my pastor hat, like it, it really makes me think about something that you began to hit on here, Justin, um, which, which is do we eventually get to a place where um, folks' insensitivity, uh, even at sometimes outright hatred of, of us uh, as you know people of color, begins to have an impact on us uh, that it didn't have before, right? Like I would, I would not have known literally uh, about Dr. Seuss's uh, these six books that have these insensitive images. And it is not to say that they are not insensitive. I haven't read them. I don't know. Never seen those books um, open before me. So I don't know, but it was not part of my worldview. Like it didn't, you know, little black kid from the west side of Chicago. It did not shape me uh, in any way. Um, and and so by doing this always, do we begin to let other people's opinions of us uh, begin to impact us in ways that they really wouldn't have, uh, except somebody told us, you know, that this is going on. It's, it's like, you know, at, at, at the schoolyard, when you start passing you know, kind of the, the rumor around that kid doesn't like you, you know, why well, I didn't know he didn't like me until you told me that he didn't like me. And to what extent is his not liking me really impacting me, except for now I have to deal with the uh, mental and emotional piece of knowing that there's a kid now here who does not like me. Um, and so I think we do have to be uh, careful about that. Um you know, because it, it what it then does is allows us to distract ourselves from the things that are actually, uh, you know, impacting us. Right. Like, so I don't know what Dr. Seuss thought about black and brown folks and people of color never talked to Dr. Seuss. And like I said, I never read those six books. I know that in cities all over the United States, um, a lot of them, most of them controlled by folks who would be uh, very much against Dr. Seuss and his books. Uh, but in those cities, you have school systems that have really, really low expectations for black and brown kids. And I think that's actually impacting those kids a lot more than Dr. Seuss's thoughts uh, about them. And so when we distract ourselves with too much conversation about Dr. Seuss and what he thinks, uh, then we get away from these real issues. Um, and we're not 
we, we may be cultivating things in our environment and in our children that really don't necessarily need to be there. Um, I, I think that, and I'll, I'll, uh, I'll finish with this. I think that one of the impacts of kind of like our social media culture uh, is that it allows everybody uh, to be a commentator. And of course, I'm saying this on a, on a podcast where we're commenting on everything. Um, but I think that sometimes we lose focus on building a world that we can live in and that we want to live in because we're so concerned about commenting on the world. And some of these things that grow out of our commentary um, really negatively impact our ability to actually live in the world. Um, and so I, I, I do pray, you know, I, I know we, we mostly talk about civics and politics and stuff like that. And I guess this is a little bit uh, civically inclined, but I, I just pray that, you know, we will be more aware of this, right? Uh, and and I, I will say, Justin said it, but I'll say it so nobody can ever say that I didn't say it. Uh, this is not about saying that everything that anybody does is right. Folks say foolish things and they should be held accountable uh, for those things. But we don't want to, um, we don't want to mess up stuff trying to fix it. Uh, we don't want to as my granny would say, you don't want to cut off your nose to spite your face. Um, and so we just have to be aware of it. You make a very good point about focus. You can only focus on so many things. And when you're trying to persuade people, you can only, you know, you can only prioritize so many things. Right. Uh, so I think we need to look at our focus and we need to look at the expectations that we set. Right. You should expect justice because you deserve justice and there's no excuse for that. And at the same time, everybody is not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. Am I fighting for that? Right. Because when you look on, you know, some of our commentary for some of our influencers, some of our, our, our activist friends and academic friends, you almost see a conflation. Right. Like, are we prioritizing injustice? And fighting against that, or are we prioritizing fighting against microaggressions? Now, I know that those things aren't mutually exclusive, but what's the danger in conflating them? Because some people, sometimes people can't tell the difference. And, and it really comes down to this: like, are you fight, are you fighting for kind of like validation and, and for somebody to tell you that you're beautiful and, and agree with all your, your sensibilities? Or are you fighting for something more concrete? rights and making sure that people are are treated with human dignity in a deeper sense. Again, everybody's not going to make you feel warm and fuzzy inside. And when it comes to these books, I, I, I haven't read these books either. Right. But if, if I happen to have those in my li library, I would probably continue to read those six books to my kids, because I think, Chris, that it would provide me with an opportunity to teach them about insensitivity and this country's history. I don't I don't want my sons to be um, to be unaware of, of things like that. Uh, I think they get more out of me reading it to them and having that conversation with them than pretending that that book didn't exist or shouldn't exist. They'd also learn more about the complexities of life. Someone can be gifted and can be wrong. Someone can be wrong. And still have something 
valuable to teach. I'll let you uh, finish this off, brother. Yeah, man, I, I, I think you, uh, you, you have said it there. Um, there, there are things that we can do and should do in the, in the culture, but we can't, uh, you know, we can't try to vanquish folks. Right. I, I think one of the things that we have even seen, uh, in the last, you know, four years or so, uh, is, is how these things can be hidden in the culture for a long time and one day rear their ugly heads. Uh, and so if we teach folks to pretend that this stuff doesn't exist, um, rather than doing the hard work um, of, of actually confronting these things and talking about them and dealing with the fact that they really are part of our history, that we can't, we can't change that. Like that is part of uh, our history. Um, and how, how do we deal with that? Like instead of trying to, like you said, pretend that it doesn't exist or act like we vanquished uh, all of that from our culture, vanquished all those people, let's deal with it, right? Confront it, talk about it, work through it uh, some of the times. I'm just going to say the disclaimer one more time, Justin. This is not to say that people get to just walk around, say whatever they want to say and do whatever they want to do. Uh, you should expect to be held accountable for the things that you say, the things that you do, the things that you write. Um, but we shouldn't always be expected to pretend like people didn't say them or do them uh, or write them because they did. Uh, and we should be dealing with that uh, much more so, I think, than just trying to disappear. Yeah, I mean, it's more about the reaction and how we teach people they should react to things than justifying what was said. We all know that what was said was wrong or, or some of those things are wrong. But how do we react to them? We, we can talk about trauma, but we can also emphasize resilience. And I, and I would look back again to the civil rights movement for that. Well, in camp, there is a cross that neither political conservatism nor progressivism is fit to bear. There's a civic hearing in need of faithful witnesses who love social justice and won't surrender the truth to be loved by the world. Politic with the boldness and compassion of Jesus Christ. Until next time, man, camp. Well, I'll... Kingdom. Oh, Lord, I said, Kingdom.